Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. God is good, right? And all the time. Get your Bibles and turn them to John chapter 5. And uh, I want to just go ahead and kind of explain some of the things that I'm realizing uh, about this. We've been in the Gospel of John for a total, this will be our 21st week, right? And at that rate, that means we are covering 20% of a chapter every week. Uh, 0.21 chapters every week. And so I personally have a desire before the Lord to be able to preach through every uh, book of the Bible by the time I'm dead. And uh, at this rate, uh, at the rate that we're going, it's going to take 108 years um, to preach every book of the Bible. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to pray what Hezekiah prayed, Lord, extend my days, right? Uh, or we could just pray, Lord, like, just <laughs> help me not to have to preach every single word, but I'd rather not do that. I'd rather preach every single word. Um, so last Sunday, we ended John chapter 4, and we heard about this story of this royal official who had influence, who had power, who had connections and authority, and yet he, all of his authority, all of his power is dwindled down to one trial, one moment, uh, one experience that we all as humans know, and it's what? Powerlessness. We're all familiar with that, right? His son was dying, he was mortally ill, and he runs to Jesus, and Jesus miraculously heals him. What an incredible story, but uh, this powerlessness, right? Like, it's, it's, a, it's a key theme of today's text, right? So let's keep thinking about it a little, a little more. Like, you know, you live long enough and you're going to feel powerless, right? How many of you felt powerless when you saw those red and blue lights chasing up behind you and following you? Right? You wanted to have the power to shut them off and get them going somewhere else. How many of you felt powerless whenever you saw that really terrible call that the ref made on the TV and you stand up and you're trying to shout through the TV to tell the ref that he may, yep, yep, made a terrible call and he needs to reverse it as if yelling at the TV is actually going to do something. Powerlessness, right? <laughs> a little bit more seriously, though. My wife and I experienced powerlessness when we lost three kids in the womb. Powerless to bring them back to life. You may feel powerless when you have this really bad habit that you just can't seem to kick. Powerless when you watch as airplanes crash into buildings and towers collapse. You remember that moment, right? You remember the moment you, you saw the news. You remember where you were. Can I, can I just ask this? Let's just kind of do a point of realization. How many of you weren't born yet? How many of you weren't born? Yep. There are people here today who hadn't been born yet, and their memory of 9-11 is what we tell them of it. But you remember where you were. I remember, I, I, just, I'm going to date myself, I was in seventh grade, right, which means, yes, I'm 32 years old, and I remember the, the teachers going crazy, to, uh, really concerned, hearing talks, but not sure what was happening, they wouldn't turn on the news, uh, I, and I get home off the bus at the end of the school day, and, and I see the news, and I remember just laying on the couch in our living room, 
just on my side and like confused about everything that was happening. I, I, at a, at, at, in seventh grade, like I had no clue. But I remember feeling powerless. I remember being like, I, we can't do, like what can we do about this? We all experience powerlessness. Every single one of us. One of the things that is very important for us to do is to take a second and analyze how we each uniquely respond to those moments of powerlessness. Have you, have you thought about how you respond uh, apart from yelling at the TV? <laughs> Great. How do you respond when you feel powerless? What, what, are, what are your reactions to it? Think about that. You got to think about it because it's important because it's what you're throwing yourself on to get power. You know, for me, I, um, when I feel powerless, I actually recluse back. I, I hide away, and I try to find things to kind of numb the pain of it, uh, to kind of force my mind to not have to think about things that I'm powerless over. Some of you, uh, some of you might blame other people for your powerlessness. Maybe a family member, a parent, maybe somebody who took something away from you. Some of you might uh, do the opposite of reclusing. Maybe you kind of like amp up. You, you, you get on your spiritual steroids and you're like going to take control of the matter. You're going you're gonna to express your own power and you're going to take control of everything that you can control and try to fix it on your own. That's what you do when you feel powerless. And I still think that there's others of you. When you feel powerless, you look into the world to see what can be a quick fix. Just a quick fix, something that can make it better. Well, today we're in a story about Jesus that's also about a man who was powerless to fix his own deep brokenness. And his experience with Jesus is going to force you and I to ask ourselves the question, in what attempts am I making, trying to make myself whole? In what ways am I attempting to make myself whole again? This is one of the key themes of the text, right? So if you uh, want to know a key theme of a specific passage of Scripture, just look at the repeated words. So in this passage, there's one repeated word that's pretty often. It's called Sabbath. That's what we're going to talk about next week. We're going we're to address that theme of this passage next week. But the other key theme, the other repeated phrase throughout these 15 verses is the word well or healed or in your KJV, whole. That's the theme that we're looking at this week. The theme of wholeness, of wellness. So if you can remember, Jesus was in Galilee uh, in chapter 4. He just uh, did the, the, the healing of the son of the royal official. And because there's this Jewish feast coming up, and because Jesus is perfect at keeping the law, where does he go? What does it say? He goes to Jerusalem. He makes his way there. Now, in the city of Jerusalem, on the northern wall, at the east side, there's this little opening in the wall that's called the Sheep Gate, right? You actually have heard about it if you've read through Nehemiah. It was part of the rebuilding. They rebuilt part of the Sheep Gate. And by this little opening in the wall was this 
area where there were these two pools that were surrounded by four covered colonnades that kind of made like a, a trapezoid and a fifth colonnade that separated these two pools. Now, when we talk about colonnades or porticos, that's not often what we are familiar with, but, but they're, they're basically covered walkways with columns that, that people can walk through, right? And there's five of them here. And what's crazy is, is you can actually today go to Jerusalem and see these pools and to see the excavation of these colonnades. I actually have a, a picture for you. This is the pool that's being referenced here. A picture that was just recently taken. You can go near, it's, it, this pool, it's actually near what's called the Church of St. Anne today. And they've been working on excavating this whole scene for over a, a century. Now, what did they say this pool was called? What, what, what does your text say? What does it say this pool is called? It's called Bethesda, right? The pool of Bethesda. In Hebrew, the word Bethesda is broken down into two parts. Beth meaning house, right? Which is where we get like Bethel, house of God. And Eshta meaning pouring or pour. So literally this put together, Bethesda means house of outpouring. House of pouring out. House of twin outpouring since there were two pools there. Sounds like a pretty hopping place, right? House of outpouring? I'm going to go eat there, Right? Sounds like, aha, uh-huh, you know what? It sounds like a new trendy church name. Go to that church, right? Sounds hopping, right? No, actually, it's, it's not. This, this isn't the place where the rich and the influential were gathering together. This is where a multitude of disabled and diseased invalids gather to find shelter and care. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and they're all gathered under one roof. Guys, I, I, I got to be honest with you. I, I don't know how we could relate to that image. I don't think we have anything like it. There might be something close in like Skid Row over in LA. Like if you go to Los Angeles and you go to Skid Row, it's this series of blocks in the city where it's, it's just incredibly run down and there are tents lining each side of the road full of the homeless, full of mentally and physically disabled, full of... of uh, Addicts and prostitutes, they, they all call that place home, right? Like, it's, it's just a place of deep need. And there's tons of ministries there, rescue missions there. But it's a sight that you often won't see. And it sobers. Because this house of outpouring is a house of incredible poverty and deep need. And most of Jerusalem's disabled are all gathered in that spot for a particular reason. You can find it in verse 4. Take a look. See if you can find what the reason is. Let me guess. You just found out your Bible doesn't have a verse 4. Huh? (laughs) Did they forget to count? No. See, here's the thing. It's probably down in your footnote. Unless you're rocking the KJV, which actually includes it, most, to, most of today's translations don't include verse 4. Because in the copying of the Gospel of John, verse 4 was not in the older manuscripts. Meaning the ones that were closer to the actual authorship did not have verse 4 in them. But it, somehow it showed up later on in later manuscripts. 
And so instead of including it as an actual verse, they're taking the safe route and putting it down as a footnote. But apparently, there's this superstition. There's this superstition. I don't know about you, but I'm not really superstitious. I'm just a little stitious. These people are really superstitious. And it's, it's like there's this superstition that's not even attested to anywhere in any other literature at the time. There's not been any reference to this except for in this note, in this footnote, that basically sometimes the pool would stir, water would start to stir in the pool, and the superstition was that it was an angel dipping its wing into the water and stirring the water up, and whoever got in the pool first would be healed. That was the superstition. Now, even though verse 4 doesn't really, we're not sure about the validity of it, verse 7 does demonstrate that there is some sort of superstition because the guy said, uh, when the water stirs, nobody, I can't get down to it in time, right? So there's some sort of confirmation there. He has no one to put him in the pool when the water stirred up. Now, uh, in excavating the site, they found that these pools are fed by large reservoirs and even intermittent springs. And so sometimes when water would be added uh, to the pool underneath, they would well up, it would bubble up and stir. And not only that, but the water had a red hue to it, so it was even thought to be medicinal. I can keep talking about the pool, but the point isn't the pool. In fact, if anything, the pool points us to is the fact that it's unable to do what we need it to do. There's another point to this story. You see, uh, uh, among the invalids gathered around this pool, there's one man, one single man, and the story hones in on this one guy. He's been disabled for how many years, what does it say? 38 years. Guys, that's longer than I am old. Now, we don't know like, exactly what his illness or disability was, but we can safely assume that it at least made him lame or paralyzed because he needs somebody else to pick him up, right? So we, we, we at least know that. We can safely assume that he has been paralyzed. He's not been able to walk for 38 years. He's been paralyzed longer than most people usually were alive at the time. Now, I, I think one of our initial reactions to reading about this guy is to distance ourselves from him. Oh, I don't have what he has. I, I can, I got legs, they walk. This is different. Don't make that mistake. Guys, the, 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 when, when Paul says, or when Jesus says, sorry, in this word, disabled, the word used there in this gospel means infirmity. It means a weakness or a disability. It means debilities. So uh, if you want to understand a little bit more what weakness is, you can look across how it's used in Scripture. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says that uh, he's talking to God about this thorn in the flesh that keeps him an, uh, uh, in pain. Uh, physically or spiritually, there's debate over that. But he's praying to the Lord to take it away. And the Lord says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. The exact same word here for disabled. The exact same word here for invalid. 
Paul's response is, therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, about my debilities, about my infirmities, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So we're not just simply talking about a physical debility. There's more to that. I mean, Romans 14 says that you you and I can have a weak or disabled or debilitated faith. It says in 1 Corinthians 8 that we can have a weak or malfunctioning conscience. As when we think about this infirmity, we think about weakness. And literally, isn't weakness the epitome of powerlessness? We don't have the strength. So, brothers and sisters, it would do us really well to start with the conclusion that you and I are prone to having weaknesses. That we all have them. You see, you you and I have debilities. Some of them are physical, right? Some of them are in our bodies, but we also have debilities inside. We have areas in us where we're broken, where we're not functioning right. Maybe it's because of something that we've done. Maybe it's because of something that's been done to us. Maybe it's because of something we didn't have when we were growing up, or maybe it's something we had too much of when we were growing up. Either way, we all have our unique brokennesses. We all have our unique ways where we aren't functioning properly as God originally designed when he said this is very good. Whether it's physically, whether it's spiritually, mentally, emotionally, socially, any lee that you want to create, right? We are a broken humanity, right? And, 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 and you and I, are, the world is still subjected to the curse, subjected to the fall. In Genesis 3, right, when, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they took on their own God-likeness or they tempted to it, they, in doing that, they fractured the goodness that God had instilled into his design, which means that the design is in need of deep repair. So I um, uh, don't usually listen to Caleb or Spirit FM as I'm driving. I usually have my own podcast or audiobooks or my own playlist from Spotify, whatever. But the other day I was driving with the family, with the kids, and uh, we just turned on Caleb, right? And um, heard this new song that just came out. It, uh, it's a uh, song called Perfectly Loved. Sounds beautiful, right? And, and has a beautiful premise to it, and I agree with a lot of it. Then it got to the bridge, and I'm listening to the lyrics. And it says this, you're not a problem. You're not a mistake. You don't need fixing or solving in the arms of his grace. My first thought was, oh, that's cute. My second thought was, that's not biblical. That's not scriptural. So I'm not trying to say you need to watch out for what you listen to on Caleb, but you need to watch out for what you listen to on Caleb and Spirit of Him. It's not a biblical world of view to say that, oh, I don't need any kind of repair. I don't need any kind of fixing. I just, I'm good and God accepts me as I am. He accepts you as you are, but he doesn't let you stay as you are. Guys, we have tons of things within us that are just malfunctioning. They need fixing. And it's not just in our health, it's in our hearts. Right? So, so, so 
before you run away from this text thinking, oh, uh, this has nothing to do with me, you need to see yourself as the man. You are the one laying by the pool, desperate and powerless. You need to know why you need to see yourself as the man by the pool? Because it's the man by the pool that Jesus ran to. Jesus goes right to this man. Think about that. Think about it, right? Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was that place where all the high ballers were, where, where the religious elite were. Man, he could have been rolling with the dogs of the day, right? He could have been chilling with the homies who were clean, who were pious. But instead, he goes to the place where no one else wants to go. He goes to the skid row of Jerusalem. He heads to the areas of brokenness and to those who have been rejected because they are an inconvenience. You see, Jesus typically moves towards need, not comfort. He moves towards those who are broken and brokenhearted, not the self-righteous and pious. And when he goes to those who are in deep need, who recognize their powerlessness to fix their own brokenness, what does he offer them? Wholeness. Wellness. Look at verse 6. And Jesus said to this man, Do you want to get well? Circle the word well, right? So uh, your translation might have healed. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to get well? right? And you can track that throughout this whole story. You can circle it every time it appears in their conversation and Jesus's words, right? Like just track it. But the word wellness, the word uh, also it's translated as soundness. It's also translated as health, right? As wholeness. And it's not just in the physical condition, right? So you remember Jesus's famous saying, it is not the healthy same word, the, the well, the sound, who need a doctor, but who? The sick, the weak, the powerless. So this isn't just simply, do you want to get well in the physical sense, though that is included in this. It's also in the spiritual. It's, it's this offer to the spiritually dead, the spiritually sick and disabled, the weak, those who need to be made well and whole. And what's crazy is that this, this word well, this word sound, isn't just in the person's state of being, it's in their doctrine, right? You can have sound or healthy doctrine, which is literally the word orthodoxy, right? You, uh, in 1 Timothy 1, in 1 Timothy 6, it says you can be healthy in your words, well in your words. You also, in Titus 1, says you can be healthy or sound in or well in your faith. As in the story of the prodigal son, the son comes to his own senses. He comes back to the father. The father is running out to him. He embraces him, kisses him. He brings him in. He clothes him with the robe. He puts the signet family ringer on his finger, and he puts sandals on his feet. He kills the fattened calf, brings everybody in, and they celebrate. You know why? What scripture says? Because the son came home well. He came home sound. He came back and was made healthy. 
in Luke 15. Guys, one of the key themes of Jesus' ministry in the kingdom of God in the world today is to offer we who are riddled with infirmity wellness. To offer us who are corrupted with brokenness whole in our heart, soul, mind, body, strength. Jesus offers wellness, wholeness to a broken humanity. So he says to this man, do you want to be made well? Guys, don't psychologize that question. Don't make it seem like, oh, well, if the guy just wanted to be better, he could have been better, right? That's how all betterness starts. You just have to want it. This guy was paralyzed. You think he could fix that by wanting to be better? Oh, I'm going to want it. Oh, I'm wanting it. Wanting it. Whoa, my legs work, right? You think that's how wellness works? You got to want it. Don't psychologize that. The dude's paralyzed. The only way it's getting fixed is in a supernatural intervention from God. It's called a miracle. But you know, when you read that question, isn't the answer kind of obvious? It's okay to laugh. Isn't it kind of... <laughs> what gave it away, Jesus? <laughs> right? <laughs> Like, like, here's your sign. <laughs> he's right, he's a paralyzed guy laying on the floor next to a pool where everybody was superstitiously believing that if they got in the water when an angel stirred it, they could be healed. You think he wants to get well? Of course he does. I don't mean to say that in a mocking or trite way to Jesus, but there can be people who respond that way. So one key question that we could ask is, why would Jesus ask him that? Do you want to be made well? And the problem is, we can only surmise out of wisdom. We don't have it commanded or, or explained anywhere why Jesus asked this of him. So I'll take a, a stab of it in two ways as to why Jesus would even ask this question. And, and the first one uh, comes out of some of my own pastoral experience. Guys, I've been pastoring for about 10 years. And, uh, and I, I, I'll tell you this, and it may come as a shock to some of you, maybe not to others, but, but there are people who talk about wellness and they say they want it, but they actually don't want to be made well. So I heard a story once about a pastor who was routinely uh, being uh, a, a, a part of a prayer ministry, praying over this man who was a part of their church who uh, was struggling in his health. Uh, I'm just going to tell you the story factually. He was an obese man, and his health had declined. His organs were failing, and in his obesity and, and unhealth, uh, he became disabled and wasn't able to work. He didn't have a job. He was on disability. And they kept praying for this man week after week, asking this God of grace to heal him and, and all of his organs and put them back together. Well, after a lot of prayer and nothing changing, the pastor said, he remembered this passage, he remembered Jesus' question, and he asked the guy, brother, do you even want to be made well? Just trying to explore what's going on potentially. And the guy thought about it. You know what? No, I, I don't want to. Then I'd have to get a job. 
He didn't want the level of responsibility that came with wellness. As there are people who talk about their addictions as the biggest problem in their life, and they talk about wanting to be well from them, but they don't actually want to be well from them because it's a way that they can cope with their pain. They don't want to give it up. There are people who don't want to give up their anxiety because it's their only way that they can actually take control of things or perceptively take control of their circumstances. So they don't want to give up control to a sovereign God. There are people who don't like that they're depressed and they talk about wanting to be well from it, but they deep down don't actually want to give it up because if they were to, then they would lose all the attention that they get from people whenever they try to get their pity from them. There are people who talk about their porn addiction and want to give it up, but deep down they don't really want to because it solves a point of pain in their marriage. Wow, I... That's hard. There are people who actually don't want to be made well. And they don't actually know it, but they'd rather wallow in the filth of the infirmity. So I think that might be a reason, right? And that's a really hard reason to grasp. But I think the other one, more likely why Jesus would ask this is to offer this man what the pool never could. Is to offer this man what the pool never could offer him. So guys, this man, this invalid, 38 years paralyzed, has this deep brokenness and he thinks he can fix it with a pool, with some stirred water, an angel, and the superstition. He thinks he can fix it with that. Now, I don't think any of us are as superstitious. You might, again, be a little stitious. But I don't think many of us are actually relying on superstitions to fix us, but I do believe we've all got some ways in which we're trying to make ourselves whole. Guys, we are so prone to, to do what the world tells us to do about what, what it's perceiving as brokenness and how to fix it. So, for example, like, and we do this in the church, to kick your porn addiction, you, you, you rely on your computer blocks and accountability partners, but whenever you give in, you blame your block and you blame your accountability partner without even owning any part of it in your own heart. Or to address uh, your own like insecurities about your self-perception, about your appearance, or about whether or not you have a likable personality, or whether or not you actually like the life that you're leading, to, to address and fix all of your insecurities about those things, you leverage your social media accounts to get the likes and the affirmation that you think will actually fix the root problem. Or, or to deal with the pain of growing up in a critical home where everything you did, everything you wore, everything you said was critiqued, you now critique others just to solve the pain and feel better about yourself. As we've all looked to the different pools that this world offers, or we've made some on our own to try to fix areas of brokenness in our lives, we've all got them. 
But this passage shows us the problem with those pools. And it's this passage in which Jesus, I think, is compassionately calling out to us today the very simple truth that I think a lot of us will actually find relation to is that nothing worldly can fix what the fall broke. Nothing in this world can fix those things that the fall in Genesis 3 broke. So like we think that this book by this author, this next book that's going to come out by this author, uh, is going to fix our deep grief, right? And, and help us cope with our deep pain of loss. Or you think that this new therapy practice of like rubbing your ears and saying, woosah, is actually going to help you in your anger. Because we too easily depend on created things to fix the areas of brokenness the fall created in us. And you know how I know this is true? Uh, because this was me. And in some ways, in a lot of ways, still is me. Guys, for, 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 for many years, many years of my life, I kept being really angry at myself. In fact, I would often, uh, in my prayer life and, and in some conversations with mentors, would tell them how much I hated myself. Um, because I kept doing the things that I didn't want to do. I kept struggling with sin again and again and again, and I felt trapped in it. And so I kept blaming myself and hating myself. But I wasn't willing to give up my self-hatred. You know, I, I don't think it's a biblical thing to hate the things that God loves. But I was hating myself. And I didn't want to give it up because I thought that hating myself was going to actually produce the change I wanted to see in me. But it never worked. I kept getting in those pools of guilt, of anger, and self-hatred, and I kept coming out the same. I was never made whole by those things. As Jesus is calling out in this very moment, quit looking to the pool for your healing. Look to me. And notice how the man responds in verse 7. Verse 7, he says, Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but when I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Some people kind of see some bitterness in there, and you might be able to get away with that, but you know what I really see in fullness? He is helpless. He is powerless, and he's alone. He's believing no one cares about him. Here comes Jesus, full of overwhelming love and compassion for this man. Like, this man doesn't even say, yes, do you want to be well? Well, I don't have this. He just kind of complains, maybe, and, 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 and exposes his pain in his heart. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't even care if he says yes. Get up. Pick up your mat walk 
Verse 9. Instantly, the man got well. He picked up his mat and he started to walk. So the wholeness, the wellness that Jesus offered earlier is conferred. He's made well. Guys, this is what Isaiah was prophesying in Isaiah 35. I've got it up on the screen for you. It says this, Say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Guys, in our world, that is wildly broken and spiritually dried. Jesus offers wholeness. You know what's crazy? Later on in, in the Gospel of John in chapter 7, Jesus recounts this story. And you know what he says he did to the man? It literally says that he made this man entirely whole, entirely well, which only proves the main point for today that this third recorded miracle in the Gospel of John is pointing us to. Only Jesus can make us whole. Can we say this together? One, two, three. Only Jesus can make us whole. Guys, only Jesus can, can turn back the effects of the fall and make them untrue in your life. You see, when you rest in and you rely on Jesus, you're resting in and relying on the only one who is not powerless. You're resting in the one who will never become powerless. In fact, in your brokenness and in your powerlessness, you are turning to the one who is all-powerful and has all authority over all brokenness and weakness. Now, you, you, you may be uh, kind of skeptical still, right? You may be thinking, Come on, Scotty boy. Like this, this guy was, he was a paralyzed man, right? That's a physical thing. It's a physical thing that had no possible worldly cure to it, right? Nothing in the world could fix that. He needed a miracle. We've got all sorts of medicines and solutions out in the world today that we could try to fix ourselves with, right? This guy was, it was impossible to heal him. Isn't that the whole point? Isn't the point that if Jesus can heal something that's absolutely impossible for anything in this world to heal, then wouldn't it be safe to assume that the lesser would be true as well? That's the argument from the greater to the lesser. Wouldn't it be wise for us then to conclude that if Jesus can make us whole in such a drastic, miraculous way, couldn't he also make us whole in the smaller, finer details in our life? Wouldn't it be wise to be where he runs when we notice brokenness within us not some worldly solution like when our grief and when our sorrow debilitates us when our insecurities weaken our ability to love others but force them to love us for our affirmation, or, or when our pain and our anger from past abuses or current predicaments disables us to be able to trust anyone or always be joyless, we run to Jesus because only he can piece us back together and make us whole. Not the bottom of a bottle, 
not the end of a needle, not a particular relationship that you try to find satisfaction in that only lasts a night. We run to Jesus to make us whole. Now, I, I, we could wrap up with this, but I, I, the story's not done. There's one more thing in here because this man isn't left alone in this, right? Jesus heals this man, makes him well, and they kind of separate, and then they come back together, and, and Jesus does something that's going to make him probably a bit unpopular, right? Look at verse 14. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Whoa. That's hard. First, Later on in John chapter 9, Jesus clearly shows us that suffering physical debilities is not a punishment from God for sin on the individual or in the parents. He just does that. He, he proves that in John 9. But it's that God would be glorified. But here there's something connected. He says, something worse doesn't happen to you. I mean, I mean, what could be worse than 38 years paralyzed? Seriously, what could be worse than that? Well, if you keep going on down in verse 29, which we'll get there apparently next year, there's, there's Jesus referencing the final judgment. That would be much worse for someone who's riddled with sin to stand before a holy God and have no plea. Now, this is where we start losing people, right? Lots of people love to jump on the Jesus train because he can fix what's broken within us. But when he calls out sin in us, we say, nope, that's not for me. I don't want in on that. Guys, when, when the kingdom of heaven wants to collide into your life, you only have two responses that you can offer. One would be, yes, Jesus, have your way in me. I want to be healed of everything broken. I want the fall's work to be uh, turned back. And I want every lust, every pride, every idolatry, everything in my heart that's rebel to you, I want it gone. You can have that response, or you can have the other response, and you can keep trying to fix yourselves with your own strength, with your own handmade worldly pools, think that they're actually going to be enough, but you're never going to find healing. You're never going to find contentment or satisfaction in this life. So, like, what if I told you that Jesus was more concerned about your holiness than he is your health? What if I told you that Jesus may allow your body to fail so that your holiness might flourish? You see, this is why people don't follow Jesus, because we want him to heal us and make us comfortable, but we don't want him to make us more Christ-like. That's part of what it means to be made whole. It comes with the territory. So Jesus is going to gently get into those areas of brokenness and shame and doubt and fear in our lives, and he can make us whole. And while he's doing that, he's calling out those rebel desires, those rebel lusts, and he's saying, those are no more. And he's setting us free from them. But if there's anything that this text is showing us today, is that nothing in this world is able to make you whole. Nothing is able to turn back the effects of the fall. Only Jesus can make us whole. So I can't help but wonder, 
Is Jesus asking you today, do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? This time, if you would bow your heads and and close your eyes. You've got to ask yourself that question. If, if you're in here today and you're, you're not believing in Jesus, you don't have any kind of faith in Him, and you're just far from God, and you're feeling the conviction that you've been trying to fix what's broken in you, you've, you've been able to see it enough. You've been able to see your own flaws and failures and, and weaknesses, and you've been trying to fix them in your own ways. As Joseph said earlier, today is the day of salvation. Today can be the day where you can be made well. If you would just receive Jesus, cast down the pools that you've fashioned with your own hands and trying to fix and solve your own brokenness. That can be you today. I would ask that you don't leave today, but that you come talk with me. I'd love to hear from you and start you off on this new journey with Jesus. But for those of you who are followers of Christ, I think you're fully aware of how relevant this is for you. Because you're seeing again and again ways in which you are weak, prone to wonder how you feel it. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe you're addicted. Maybe you're overwhelmed. Maybe you're anxious. Maybe you are in deep, deep sorrow. Maybe you're angry. And you're trying to find ways to solve those pains. And you're getting in the pulls that you've made with your own hands. When Jesus is the one standing next to you saying, do you want to be made well? Because only I can make you whole. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.